The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. To the reader. Ignorance, error, lust, and greed, and sin possess our souls and exercise our flesh. Habitually, we cultivate remorse like whores and beggars nourishing their lice. Our sins are stubborn. Cowards, when contrite, we overpay confession with our pains. And when we're back again in human mire, vile tears, we think, will wash away our stains. Powerful Satan, watching by our sick beds, lulls us to sleep, our spirit overkissed until the precious metal of our will is vaporized, that cunning alchemist. Who but the devil pulls our puppet strings, luring us with abominations, each day we take another step to hell, descending through the stench, unhorrified, like a pathetic drunk who mouths and chews the sagging breast of an old withered whore we steal in passing whatever joys we can squeezing the driest orange all the more packed in our brains incestuous as worms our demons celebrate in drunken gangs and when we breathe that hollow rasp is death sliding invisibly down into our lungs. If the dull canvas of our wretched life is unembellished with such pretty things as knives or poison, pyromania, rape, it is because our soul's too weak to dare. But in this den of jackals, monkeys, dogs, scorpions, buzzards, snakes, this paradise of filthy beasts that screech, howl, grovel, grunt. In this menagerie of mankind's vice, there's one supremely hideous and impure. Soft-spoken, not the type to cause a scene, he'd willingly make rubble of the earth and swallow up creation in a yawn. I mean boredom. Who in his hookah dreams produces hangmen and real tears together. How well you know this fastidious monster. Reader. You. Hypocrite reader. My double. My brother.
recognize that. Famous opening to Le Fleur du Mal, Flowers of Evil. The great poetry collection by French poet Charles Baudelaire. This work, which shocked the conscience and sensibility of a nation and a continent, has become one of the most influential collections of poetry in the history of literature. These weren't just poems. They were connected in spirit, in attitude, in worldview, in stance. The poems, quote, follow each other like the vertebrae of a serpent, end quote, said the French poet Gautier, to whom the collection is dedicated. And they arrived like a match set to dry gunpowder. T.S. Eliot said years later, quote, I am an English poet of American origin who learned his art under the aegis of Baudelaire and the Baudelarian lineage of poets, end quote. Baudelaire had his own influences, none greater than the subject of our Thursday theme for this October, Edgar Allan Poe. Baudelaire was about 12 years younger than Poe, who was not well known when Baudelaire discovered him. He assumed Poe was much more famous than he actually was. Baudelaire translated his works into French, and he found in him a kindred spirit, a fellow artist, almost a double. The stories, he said, felt like stories that he had been thinking about writing. And here they were, completed by someone else. Baudelaire and his translations made Poe more respected in France than he ever was in America or England. English-speaking readers had to reassess their view of Poe, wondering if maybe they had missed something that Baudelaire had found. But who was this man Baudelaire? Why did Poe's works resonate with him so much? What kind of poetry did he write, and what kind of legacy did he leave? We're looking at Charles Baudelaire, today, on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. We are enjoying our October as always. It's my favorite month. We're doing a Thursday theme this month, Edgar Allan Poe, and we are only scratching the surface with him. We did a, a preview episode back in September, the short story Hop Frog, a macabre little tale, a bizarre little thing. We talked about Poe's life and we read The Black Cat. We looked at his use of the doppelganger in William Wilson, and we're going to be looking at some detective fiction and one of his great masterpieces, one of his classic works of horror. That's how we'll cap things off in a couple of weeks. Today, we're going to sort through another little puzzle, Edgar Allan Poe and the French response to him, and in particular, the way that Charles Baudelaire responded to Poe's works. Baudelaire found a literary soulmate. It's exciting to see. It's like sparks flew when Baudelaire started reading Poe. The two never met. Poe had no idea who Baudelaire was, or even that he had this great French champion. By the time Baudelaire discovered him, Poe only had a couple of years left to live. And so, most of Baudelaire's translations and essays about Poe were too late to matter to Poe. And yet, they mattered to Poe's reputation quite a bit, and they matter to us. And to the extent they helped fuel Baudelaire's works, 
in particular Le Fleur du Mal, it's hard to quantify just how important Poe was. Sometimes a poet lives in ways we can't easily see just from their own works. We'll also see that when we talk about Poe's detective stories. We can imagine a world without Poe's detective, or the three stories, the three detective stories that he wrote, but can you imagine a world without Sherlock Holmes? You know, everyone who followed all the detective stories that followed. And what if Conan Doyle would never have written those stories without Poe having shown him the way? That's the kind of gap or hole in literature that one can't easily fathom. But that's for next time. Let's do this instead. We'll take a quick break, then come back with the story of the great poet Charles Baudelaire. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Charles Baudelaire was born in 1821 and lived in Paris for most of his life, dying in 1867 at the age of 46. He was a bohemian. Today we might call him a goth, or a proto-goth. He dressed in black, dyed his hair green, and wrote poems about sex, Satanism, vampirism, and decay. He was shocking. His magnum opus, The Flowers of Evil, was banned by France's Ministry of Justice for offending public morals. He was not an easy man to get along with, and you might say the same today. Readers will notice his misogyny right away. He calls women abominable, although he was also generous to them at times, holding them in reverence, wanting love, wanting sex, obsessed. He thought that both men and women were trapped in a kind of bodily prison. How do you break out of that prison? Through sex, costumes, makeup, Drugs and alcohol, suicide, and death. Pushing yourself toward vile, disgusting things. Recognizing evil. Baudelaire's father had come from a family who made their living near the forest. Woodworkers, wine growers, farm laborers, and craftsmen. He went to Paris to study, and he became a priest for a while. He lived through the French Revolution and resigned from the priesthood during the Reign of Terror. 
He married a painter and himself earned a living as a painter for a while and then worked his way up in the civil service. When he was 60, he got married for the second time to a 26-year-old orphan named Caroline. When he was 62, in 1821, their son Charles was born. He died when Charles was six. A respectable fortune from his father would come to Charles when he turned 21, which Charles knew about, of course. It caused tension between him and his elders. His mother got remarried to a man named Jacques Opic, the son of an Irishman who fought in the French military. Opic himself had become had uh, sorry had been orphaned at a young age, and he joined the military and worked his way up to becoming a general and an ambassador and a politician. He was a very successful man, a leader of society. At first, all seemed well, and Baudelaire called him his father, but later he grew to resent Opic. They argued over Baudelaire's inheritance. Baudelaire ended up borrowing money from his mother. It's not hard to imagine the two men, Baudelaire and his stepfather, vying for the same woman's affection and pulling her apart in the process. Baudelaire's mother was loyal to Charles, but nevertheless had this example of a successful man that she was married to. It's not hard to see why she often sided with him when thinking about her son's best interests. No parent wants to see their child blowing up a fortune and a future. Baudelaire was a good student. He won some prizes, but he was a little erratic. He was expelled from one school for refusing to give up a note that a classmate had passed to him. Baudelaire passed his final exam after that, but he was kicked out of school, so he spent two years in Paris's Latin Quarter, pursuing his literary career and running up debts. Baudelaire's stepfather's solution to this was to send the young man on a trip to the Indian Ocean, borrowing from Charles's future inheritance to fund it, although later, Baudelaire's mother and stepfather covered the costs. Baudelaire, anyway, hated the idea, and he jumped ship as soon as he could, returning to Paris a few months later. He didn't like being sent to India against his will, although later in life he did treat South Asia and life in general with a kind of exotic reverie. I'd say the trip did him some good, but then again, I'm not the one who was sent somewhere by my mother and stepfather, which would infuriate me, I'm sure. Back in Paris, Baudelaire received his inheritance and started spending it like crazy. The family got the court to appoint a legal advisor to oversee the money and pay Charles an allowance, and Baudelaire resented this too. He had enough to live on, but he had expensive tastes, and he wanted to spend the money as he saw fit. He and his stepfather fought bitterly, and there were times where he couldn't see his mother. He wrote her letters, angry but also affectionate, and begging for funds. It wasn't until after his stepfather died, which happened the same year as his great work, La Fleur du Mal, Flowers of Evil, was published, 1857, that things with his mother began to improve. He had been writing the poems in Flowers of Evil for years. He read them aloud to friends. One of them, one of the friends claims to have heard such a poem as early as 1842. 15 years before the collection came out. But Baudelaire didn't publish many of them separately, just a few here and there, perhaps because he viewed the collection as a unified work. 
His early poetry, the poems he did publish sporadically, were not very distinguished. He was better known for his other writings, including a novella and essays and reviews that he wrote. Already he had a taste for the shocking and for transgressing norms. One poem was about a woman who was raped by an entire army. I've known people who hate the world they live in so much they take it upon themselves to rub people's nose in the smuttiest, most vulgar ideas they can find. They take a kind of perverse pleasure in it, as if they're showing people the truth that other people are trying to avoid. I've always found it a little unhinged, a little unfair. They assume that everyone around them is living this kind of happy-go-lucky life of falseness, falsity, which isn't always true. Everyone has a balance. Most people deal with pain as much as pleasure. But sometimes these people come along and say, oh, this is all false. You're all false. Only I know the truth. Here, look at this. And they want you to look at photographs of maggots eating dead flesh or piles of shit or something. And somehow this makes them feel superior. Baudelaire seems to have been a little like this. He would show people riding breeches and say they were cut from his father's hide. Or he'd be talking to a friend and would blurt out, wouldn't it be agreeable to take a bath with me? This comes into his poetry as well. Sometimes when he's at his best, you think, great, yes, let's tear down some walls. Let's dig deep. Let's take a look at the sin and the squalor. Let's see what evil looks like. And there are other times when you read his poems and you think, Get away from me, you weirdo. And yet, he's impossible to ignore. He took romanticism as his inheritance, but in one direction was Victor Hugo. And he said, well, hang on, wait, is that really the way to go? Because I don't see that at all. I see something different. And in this difference, he latched on to Edgar Allan Poe as a kindred spirit. And the direction he took, which was not the path of Victor Hugo ended up leading to T.S. Eliot and modernism. Hugo was more successful, but Baudelaire, I think, carried the day from a legacy standpoint. Hugo is a giant, but Baudelaire is more important to the history of literature. And he's kind of more interesting to read, in a way. He's more prickly and more dynamic. There's more to grapple with. He still feels fresh, even today. Let's hear a few poems. I'll confess I didn't pick the most shocking ones. I'll give you a taste of those later. Sometimes the shocking ones make the ones that aren't quite as shocking better. It's like seeing a comedian or a comic actor who can go way over the top when he's playing it straight. You know what's coming or what could be coming. Instead, you just get a taste of it. When you know a poet is depraved or he's capable of anything... You feel the tension even when the depravity isn't there. His anger and his boldness and his despair is still there. Is this a little like Poe? Sometimes I think so. We're going to have much more about the similarities between Baudelaire and Poe coming up soon. But one thing to think about is whether Poe's life and his obsession with death and horror make his other poems and essays better. When you know what he cared about and where he was willing to go, And what animated him? You read a poem like The Bells or even just one of his letters and a kind of darkness settles in and hovers over you. 
I read a letter he writes about trying to set up a household and eating breakfast with his new bride, and I picture the two of them living in a black-and-white haunted castle. I imagine him approaching a boarding house or a dive bar under a black sun. But before we get to Poe, let's hear some Baudelaire. I read his famous introduction to the reader at the start. Let's hear one of his doom and gloom poems and one he wrote about writers and the way they were treated. The first is called Spleen. It's one of a series of spleen poems that he wrote. Actually, let's hear a couple of these spleen poems. Spleen is an organ that filters the blood, but it's also it also means bad temper or spite. The first one we're going to read is number 80 in The Flowers of Evil. It's called Spleen. I'm like the king of a rain country. This one was translated by the American poet Robert Lowell. Spleen. I'm like the king of a rain country, rich but sterile, young but with an old wolf's itch, one who escapes his tutor's monologues and kills the day in boredom with his dogs. Nothing cheers him, darts, tennis, falconry, his people dying by the balcony. The bawdry of the pet hermaphrodite no longer gets him through a single night. His bed of fleur-de-lis becomes a tomb. Even the ladies of the court, for whom all kings are beautiful, cannot put on shameful enough dresses for this skeleton. The scholar who makes his gold cannot invent washes to cleanse the poisoned element. Even in baths of blood, Rome's legacy, our tyrant's solace in senility, he cannot warm up his shot corpse whose food is syrup-green lethian ooze, not blood. And we'll go to poem 81. Spleen when the low heavy sky weighs like a lid. Spleen. When the low heavy sky weighs like a lid upon the spirit, aching for the light, and all the wide horizon's line is hid by a black day, sadder than any night. When the changed earth is but a dungeon dank, where bat-like hope goes blindly fluttering, and, striking wall and roof and moldered plank, bruises his tender head and timid wing. When the grim prison bars stretch down the thin, straight, Rigid pillars of the endless rain, and the dumb throngs of infamous spiders spin their meshes in the caverns of the brain. Suddenly, bells leap forth into the air, hurling a hideous uproar to the sky, as t'were a band of homeless spirits who fare through the strange heavens, wailing stubbornly. And hearses, without drum or instrument, file slowly through my soul. Crushed, sorrowful, weeps hope and grief, fierce and omnipotent, plants his black banner on my drooping skull. Let's do one more. We'll jump back to the section of Le Fleur de Mal, which is called Bile and the Ideal. <laughs> just to give you a sense of, we should look through the table of contents here, just to give you a sense of these poems, what they're, what they cover. We have things like the blessing, elevation, the sick muse, the venal muse, the wicked monk, the ruined garden, ill luck, Don Juan in hell, giantess, 
him to beauty, exotic perfume, her hair, the remorse of the dead, the dancing serpent, uh, to a Madonna, the ghost, sonnet of autumn, the sadness of the moon, alchemy of grief, sympathetic horror. I'm just jumping around here. <laughs> Mists and rains, the rag picker's wine, the voyage, lesbos, lesbians, there's two called that, the fountain of blood, love and the skull, Abel and Cain, the denial of St. Peter, litany to Satan, you get the idea, right? This is uh, dark stuff. Digging deep. Okay, let's listen to this one. This one I like. We're going all the way back to flower number two, which is called the albatross. The albatross. Often for pastime, mariners will ensnare the albatross, that vast seabird who sweeps on high, companionable pinion, where their vessel glides upon the bitter deeps. Torn from his native space, this captive king flounders upon the deck in stricken pride and pitiably lets his great white wing drag like a heavy paddle at his side. This rider of winds, how awkward he is and weak, how droll he seems, who lately was all grace. A sailor pokes a pipe stem into his beak. Another, hobbling, mocks his trammeled pace. The poet is like this monarch of the clouds, familiar of storms, of stars, and of all high things, exiled on earth amidst its hooting crowds. He cannot walk, borne down by his giant wings. Gives you a flavor of how Baudelaire viewed poetry and poets and how they were received by the world. Okay, other poems are about rape and arson and rotting corpses and lots of other topics. Here are a few lines from his poem, The Carcass, where the speaker describes encountering the body of a dead woman in a ditch, rotting away. Quote, the flies buzzed and droned on these bowels of filth where an army of maggots arose, which flowed with a liquid and thickening stream on the animate rags of her clothes. Yeah. End quote. That is actually a love poem of sorts. Later lines say, Ah, then, O oh my beauty, explain to the worms who cherish your body so fine that I am the keeper for corpses of love, of the form and the essence divine. <sighs> That's Baudelaire. Life is a hospital, he wrote, in which all the patients are obsessed with changing their beds. One would prefer to suffer beside the fire. Another thinks he'd recover sooner if placed by the window. This was an unhappy man willing to tap into his despair, maybe because he had no other choice. At any rate, the poems in Le Fleur de Mal have been hugely influential. Proust called him one of the two greatest poets of the 19th century. Rimbaud called him, quote, the king of poets, a true god, end quote. T.S. Eliot said, quote, All first-rate poetry is occupied with morality. This is the lesson of Baudelaire. More than any poet of his time, Baudelaire was aware of what most mattered, the problem of good and evil. What gives the French 17th-century literature its solidity is the fact that it had its morals, 
that it had a coherent point of view. Romanticism endeavored to form another morals. Rousseau, Byron, Goethe, Poe were moralists, but they have not sufficient coherence. Not only was the foundation of Rousseau rotten, his structure was chaotic and inconsistent. Baudelaire, a deformed Dante, aimed with more intellect plus intensity and without much help from his predecessors to arrive at a point of view toward good and evil, end quote. A deformed Dante. That's so good. Poe was like a deformed Chekhov, maybe, although Chekhov came later. Eliot goes on to... Con- to uh, sorry, Eliot, I'm getting carried away. Eliot goes on to contrast Baudelaire with the English poets of the same period, the post-Romantic years... Quote, English poetry all the while either evaded the responsibility or assumed it with too little seriousness. The Englishman had too much fear or too much respect for morality to dream that possibly or necessarily he should be concerned with it in poetry. This is what makes some of the most distinguished English poets so trifling. Is anyone seriously interested in Milton's view of good and evil? Tennyson decorated the morality he found in vogue. Browning really approached the problem, but with too little seriousness and too much complacency. Thus, the ring in the book just misses greatness, as the revised version of Hyperion almost or just touches it. As for the verse of the present time, the lack of curiosity in technical matters of the academic poets of today, Georgian, etc., is only an indication of their lack of curiosity in moral matters. On the other hand, the poets who consider themselves most opposed to Georgianism and who know a little French are mostly such as could imagine the Last Judgment only as a lavish display of Bengal lights, Roman candles, Catherine wheels, and inflammable fire balloons. You hypocrite reader. End quote. One can see, given Eliot's extreme interest in Baudelaire, how he would want to trace back Baudelaire to Poe. He likes where Baudelaire arrived. That was not the typical strain of poetry. As Eliot notes, those poets, the English poets, were addressing evil and morality in church or outside of their poetry, or they were adopting that into their poetry. They believed in morality, and so they expressed goodness in their poetry. But they didn't wrestle with it, didn't wrestle with evil like Baudelaire, and their poetry suffered for it. Trifling, Eliot calls it. Baudelaire found something essential in Poe, which made Eliot reconsider Poe. He said, quote, We should be prepared to entertain the possibility that these Frenchmen, meaning Baudelaire and his fellow poets Mallarmé and Valérie, we should entertain the possibility that these poets have seen something in Poe that English-speaking readers have missed. End quote. Hmm. Let's take another quick break, then come back with what Baudelaire found in Poe for our Thursday theme, looking across an ocean and only knowing Poe from his words, from his written words, Baudelaire found his double. But what does that mean?
1864, Baudelaire wrote, quote, The first time I opened a book Poe had written, I saw with equal measures of horror and fascination not just the things that I had dreamed of, but actual phrases that I had designed and that he had penned 20 years earlier. End quote. The two never met, as I said before. Baudelaire at first assumed that Poe was well-established and wealthy. He didn't think he needed even to notify Poe when he translated one of his stories. Why would Poe need it? He doesn't need the money. He must be hes such a genius. He must be fabulously wealthy. Little did he know that Poe was dying in an alley. Hmm. So sad. Poor Poe. But Poe did know what it was like to be obsessed, and Baudelaire was now obsessed with Poe. He learned what he could about Poe's life and translated more of his works. The two had many similarities. Poe had been orphaned at an early age and raised by foster parents. Baudelaire's father died when Baudelaire was still young, and his mother remarried. Poe's foster father, Alan, was successful and wealthy, but didn't understand Edgar at all. Baudelaire's stepfather was a general and an ambassador, but he didn't understand Charles. Both Poe and Baudelaire were kicked out of school for insubordination. Both spent too much, both loved luxurious items, but had hardly any money. Baudelaire inherited money and spent it so fast it was almost gone in two years. Poe took money from his foster father for books and tuition, and spent it on clothes and gambling. Both men fought against creditors and poverty and debt all their lives. And yet they both earned money through their writing. Both were astute critics. Baudelaire was an art and music critic as well as a literary critic. Poe wrote a lot of literary criticism, though he also wrote about some other subjects. Both had a kind of interest in philosophy and philosophical problems, though neither had the kind of systematic mind or diligence that could sustain an interest long enough to make a persuasive contribution to the field. We haven't talked much about Baudelaire's music and his art criticism, but as a critic he covered both successfully, and he was also friends with many fellow artists of his day. He revered the works of Wagner for a time. He consorted with actresses, including Jean Duvall, who became his mistress. He was friends with Manet, and for a while the two were constant companions. Manet did an etching of Baudelaire, and the two of them went on daily sketching trips for a while. Baudelaire encouraged Manet artistically, and Manet lent Baudelaire money. Baudelaire called the romantic painter Delacroix a poet in painting. Delacroix was appreciative in public, though he kept his distance from Baudelaire, saying that he, quote, really gets on my nerves, end quote, and then he complained that he talked about melancholy and feverishness too much. Back to our comparison with Poe. They were both addicts, Poe to alcohol and laudanum, Baudelaire to hashish and opium. They both struggled with their addictions. They promised sobriety. They took vows and then failed to live up to those vows. Both led sad and tormented lives, marked by loneliness and loss and despair. They were haunted. They were both city dwellers, too. The boarding house, the salon, the dive bar, the editorial office, the filthy streets, the tight spaces. They differed slightly in their treatment of women. Poe idealized women, who turned into kind of a dreamy, unreachable ideal. Unlike Baudelaire, he didn't write much about sex. 
Baudelaire never married. He considered them all, all women stupid, including George Sand. It's one of the unforgivable weaknesses of Baudelaire. His notes and his poems are sometimes unreadable. They're so marred by hatred and prejudice and outright misogyny. He had an affair with Jean Duval, as I mentioned. She was a Haitian-born actress who was part black and who became his muse for 20 years. The similarity, perhaps, is in the way Baudelaire and Poe treated their mother or thought of their mother. Both men struggled with their replacement fathers and longed for a purer relationship with a mother or maternal figure. Both sensed that insanity was approaching. Poe would write letters saying, For ten days I was deranged. He saw everyone around him suffering from tuberculosis. Baudelaire, meanwhile, contracted gonorrhea and syphilis, felt the madness looming see it coming. In spite of their looming madness, both were proud of their intelligence, somewhat egotistical, or I should say very egotistical. They looked down on others. They viewed themselves as superior, especially in the realm of art and cultural taste. One can only imagine what Poe would have done had he read Le Fleur de Mal when he was a young man. Instead, the influence worked the other way around. When Baudelaire read Poe, he was shocked. Here was his kindred spirit. Poe's sense of beauty and the intertwining of beauty with the grotesque and with death affirmed Baudelaire's belief that a modern artist can and should turn mud into gold, that disgusting things were the best basis for high art. Critic Jonathan Culler said, quote, Nowhere else in world literature, so far as I know, has a writer been so scorned by the literati of his own language and so celebrated by the best minds of another culture and language. In France, the most talented poets have praised Poe as a genius of the first order. English and American critics, on the other hand, have often deemed Poe a gloomy and sentimental hack judging him a vulgar adolescent poet and talented only as author of popular short stories. End quote. But how do we measure this distinction? Emerson calls Poe Jingleman, and Mallarmé calls Poe my great master and one of the most marvelous minds the world has ever known. Is this like the famous French love for Jerry Lewis? In one language and culture, a lower-level clown, somewhere between slapstick and high art. But in translation, the sophomoric qualities subside. They're somewhat, somehow drained away, leaving something more pure. Baudelaire had no shame about drawing upon Poe for influence. He said, quote, Why wouldn't I confess that what strengthened my will was the pleasure to introduce to the French a man who was a little bit like me? by some points, that is to say, a part of myself, end quote. But where do we look for Poe's influence on Baudelaire? It's not always clear from the actual work. There are influences and potential influences in the formal aspects of the poetry and other writings, but Jonathan Culler has another framework, which I think is helpful, where he neatly lays out, in contrast to the famous French credo of liberty, equality, fraternity, and he says what Baudelaire took from Poe, what he shared with Poe, what he recognized in Poe is lucidity, strangeness, and perversity. Now, what does he mean by that? Lucidity, he means clear thinking, moments of clarity, heightened discourse, almost spells, visionary spells. 
Poe taught me to think, Baudelaire says. Baudelaire was attached to Poe's, quote, strange divinatory lucidity. How about strangeness? Those were novel, imaginative ideas, the bizarre, the willingness to dig into areas others weren't. Obsession with death range across genres, but also someone not in step with his times, an iconoclast. That was Poe. That was Baudelaire, too. And finally, perversity. This is also where we see them as kindred spirits. Somewhat at odds with his day, Baudelaire's era was dominated by the thinking of Rousseau and the writings of Victor Hugo. And Baudelaire said, hey, look, there's another way. There's a secret genius out there, Edgar Allan Poe. I can follow him. Now, part of this is wanting to follow him because he's a genius. And part of this is wanting Poe to be a genius because that's who Baudelaire wanted to follow. Artists do this a lot. They need space. They need room. But if everyone is doing something, if all your contemporaries are doing something in a particular way, it can be stifling and debilitating. Dr. Johnson stopped writing original poetry because he felt like Alexander Pope had mastered the form. That's one way of dealing with influence. Step aside. Johnson's problem, if you want to call it that, his block, the reason why he stopped, was he agreed that Pope was writing in the best possible form for the era. He was doing, or he had done, what Johnson wanted to do, but he had already done it better. Now, what if everyone was praising Pope, but Johnson didn't agree with Pope's poetic project? If he thought Pope was onto the wrong things formally, or treated the wrong subjects, Johnson might have just gone ahead with whatever he wanted to do. Or he might have said, hey, okay, I get it. You all love Pope, but I need a hero. I need a different hero. I need someone who can point me in a different direction, who can say that it's okay to do things a different way. Ezra Pound used to say that Eliot had affirmed him in that sense. Pound was doing his own thing, but here was Eliot doing the same thing that affirmed what Pound was thinking. There are different paths to take, and even though I'm marching to a different drummer, here's someone else who had no idea of what I was doing, and he's marching in step with me. Affirms Pound in his poetic project. Baudelaire needed Poe in that way, I think. He needed to see that someone else had taken a look at poetry and where it was, and had come to the same conclusions about where it could and should go. And those who came after Baudelaire needed him. Baudelaire influenced Jules Laforgue, who influenced T.S. Eliot. There's a direct line or link between Romanticism and Modernism, and Poe is one of the key figures. We can see this lineage now. Poe was a late Romantic, but he was already representing something that Baudelaire was looking for. Baudelaire said, The world has changed. It's not flowers in the meadow anymore. It's not shepherds and pastoral landscapes. It's not cottages and waterfalls and abbeys in the countryside. It's cities, industrial cities. It's godless. It's radically different from the past. Baudelaire didn't recognize himself in the figure of a man walking through nature. He recognized himself in the city, just as Eliot would do years later. The patient etherized on the table. Baudelaire wasn't out there with a lute. He was looking for a flaneur, an aimless urban idler. In 1848, Napoleon III had taken over France, installing the Second Empire. Baudelaire hated it. 
He thought it was hypocritical, stifling, alienating. He hated bourgeois respectability, the Protestant work ethic, public morality. He wanted to dive into boredom, melancholy, self-hatred, joylessness, depression. Those felt more accurate to him than chipper, upbeat, can-do spirit. Baudelaire was bankrupt. He ran around with a bohemian crowd, petty criminals and artists and musicians and writers, the dregs of society, the cast-offs. In this, he was kind of like a proto-beat poet a hundred years earlier. He hated respectable people, thought they were hypocrites. Baudelaire looked at his predecessors and said, well, who among those romantics was looking at the city? Who dealt with death? Who dealt with decay, hypocrisy, falseness? While one person was De Quincey, to some extent, Baudelaire translated Confessions of an Opium Eater. But the main person, the predecessor, the double, was the man who wrote about doubles with William Wilson, Edgar Allan Poe. The impact of Le Fleur de Mal on artists was extraordinary. One said the impact was, quote, immense, prodigious, unexpected, mingled with admiration and with some indefinable anxious fear. End quote. Flaubert, who'd been attacked recently by the Ministry of Justice for the licentiousness in Madame Bovary, wrote to Baudelaire, quote, You have found a way to rejuvenate romanticism. You are as unyielding as marble and as penetrating as an English mist. End quote. As penetrating as an English mist. That's so Flaubert. It's so precise in its own way. How many writers would say as penetrating as a sword? or as penetrating as a sharp knife or something. An English mist penetrates in a completely different way, doesn't it? It affects everything. It can chill you to the bone. It affects the light you see and the air you breathe. And yet, it's all-encompassing. It's mysterious. It's impossible to isolate or define or deflect. Here's T.S. Eliot on Baudelaire. Quote, He was one of those who have great strength, but strength merely to suffer. He could not escape suffering and could not transcend it, so he attracted pain to himself. But what he could do with that immense passive strength and sensibilities which no pain could impair was to study his suffering. And in this limitation, he is wholly unlike Dante, not even like any character in Dante's Hell. But on the other hand, such suffering as Baudelaire's implies the possibility of a positive state of beatitude. Indeed, in his way of suffering is already a kind of presence of the supernatural and of the superhuman. Eliot continues, So far as we are human, what we do must be either evil or good. So far as we do evil or good, we are human, and it is better in a paradoxical way to do evil than to do nothing. At least we exist. It is true to say that the glory of man is his capacity for salvation. It is also true to say that his glory is his capacity for damnation. End quote. Now, both Eliot and later Jean-Paul Sartre came to disrespect the poetry of Baudelaire somewhat. They still appreciated the man, his influence, and the mark that he left. Eliot said, quote, He is, in fact, a greater man than was imagined, though perhaps not such a perfect poet. End quote. Eliot had tired of what he called Baudelaire's machinery, which he defined as, or he gave as examples, quote, Prostitutes, mulattoes, Jewesses, serpents, cats, corpses. End quote. 
Sartre thought as a man Baudelaire had greatness, but he, that he was a poet of evasion. He didn't like the choices Baudelaire made. He thought he wallowed where he should have acted. Quote, he elected to confuse the satisfaction of desire with its unsatisfied exasperation. End quote. But there's no denying the power of La Fleur de Mal or the seismic impact that it had. The Flowers of Evil was an unlikely collection to be as popular with artists as it was. It covered melancholy, the corruption of the city, lesbianism, the oppressiveness of living, lost innocence, demons, smells, fragrances, nostalgia, and sex. One critic wrote, Everything in it which is not hideous is incomprehensible. Everything one understands is putrid. Baudelaire wrote to his mother, Quote, you know that I have always considered that literature and the arts pursue an aim independent of morality. Beauty of conception and style is enough for me. But this book, whose title, Fleur de Mal, says everything, is clad, as you will see, in a cold and sinister beauty. It was created with rage and patience. Besides, the proof of its positive worth is in all the ill that they speak of it. The book enrages people. Moreover, since I was terrified myself of the horror that I should inspire, I cut out a third from the proofs. They deny me everything, the spirit of invention and even the knowledge of the French language. I don't care a rap about all these imbeciles. And I know that this book, with its virtues and its faults, will make its way in the memory of the lettered public. Beside the best poems of Victor Hugo, Gautier, and even Byron. End quote. His mother said, oh, if only Charles had followed the career set for him by his stepfather. He wouldn't have made his literary mark, but the three of us would have been happier. End quote. The Fleur de Mal led to prosecutions of Baudelaire, the publisher, and the printer. They were fined, but not imprisoned. Six of the poems were suppressed, but later they came out on their own, and then they were added back into Le Fleur de Mal. In 1949... France officially relented and reversed the judgment. It only took them a century to get where Baudelaire and his Bohemians were at the time. Even Victor Hugo, who was kind of under attack by Baudelaire, who was a poetic rival, who stood for what Baudelaire was against, was a supporter of Baudelaire's. He wrote to Baudelaire that, quote, "'Your flowers of evil shine and dazzle like stars. I applaud your spirit with all my might.'" End quote. Baudelaire had a sad ending, much like Edgar Allan Poe, except instead of a few days of hospitalization, he spent two years in a semi-paralyzed state. Years before, he had talked about committing suicide. He wrote a note that said, quote, I am killing myself because I am immortal and because I hope, end quote. He had a period of involvement in politics and the revolutionary fervor of 1848, but that was disillusioning. By the end, he seems to have accepted his status. An eternally lonely destiny, he said. I am like the king of a rainy country. As we heard, he titled one of his poems. He seems to have settled into a life where he knew he would be poor and miserable forever, and his only solace came in the poetry that was his true kingdom, his treasure. His poem, Meditation, suggests perhaps that Baudelaire was ready for death and peaceful release.
Here's the poem meditation again. This is translated by Robert Lowell. Meditation. Calm down, my sorrow. We must move with care. You called for evening. It descends. It's here. The town is coffined in its atmosphere, bringing relief to some, to others' care. Now, while the common multitude strips bare, feels pleasure's catonine tales on its back, and fights off anguish at the great bazaar, give me your hand, my sorrow. Let's stand back, back from these people. Look, the dead years dressed in old clothes crowd the balconies of the sky. Regret emerges smiling from the sea. The sick sun slumbers underneath an arch, and like a shroud strung out from east to west. Listen, my dearest, hear the sweet night march. Baudelaire was broke and struggling and sick. He was already being praised by younger poets, but this didn't matter much to him now. Death came in 1867. After Baudelaire died, his mother paid off his debts. She wished he had not had such a tough life, but she said she was glad to see his success. Quote, I see that my son, for all his faults, has his place in literature. Indeed, he did. Indeed, he does. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Charles Baudelaire. Our little break in the Thursday theme, just to recharge our Poe batteries. The next two Thursdays are going to be extraordinary, so please do subscribe if you haven't already. You're not going to want to miss these episodes. Did you hear the music in between? That was The Cure, who were inspired by Baudelaire and used some of his verses as a launching point for their lyrics. So you can see that the influence still extended into the 1980s over a hundred years after Baudelaire's death and the poems are still pretty vibrant today more than 150 years later Jingle Man we owe you once again for your contribution to poetry thank you for inspiring the Frenchies nice work Jingle Man we are a part of Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate Network. That's www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.